From a PhD in ancient languages to teaching the classics in Greece to the chair of the Python Software Foundation, Naomi Cedar, our guest on today's show, has built a career around learning and leading in the tech world. After earning her doctorate in classical languages and literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Naomi spent a number of years teaching Latin and the classics both in the United States and Greece before making the leap into software development. Since that switch, She's worked as an independent consultant, an open source developer, a software manager, an IT director, and a system architect for the likes of Dick Blick Art Materials, the Canterbury School, Razor Occam, Zorro Tools, and many other companies. In her seemingly endless spare time, she is a regular contributor and volunteer for the Python Software Foundation and Transcode. Last but not least, she's the author of the second and third editions of the Quick Python book from Manning Publications. Speaking of Manning Publications, just like with our earlier episodes with Chris Vias and Jay Love, the authors of Core Kubernetes, and Emily Robinson and Jacqueline Nolis of Building a Career in Data Science, we are doing a giveaway. Here's how it's going to work. The first five people who email the show at hello at developmentor.com. That's H-E-L-L-O at developmentor.com. We'll receive a code good for one free ebook. For those who don't want to send an email, you can get a 40% discount on all Manning books, including the Quick Python book, by using the discount code poddevmen20. We'll be sure to link all that up in the show notes. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Welcome to the show, Naomi. Great to have you here. Mm, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. And I trust you are doing uh, well. We are, for our audience, still recording in the middle of the pandemic, but I trust you are at least doing okay and your family is okay. We are keeping our heads down and keeping our social distances long, yes. Yeah, I work remotely and have been for a while, so in some ways some things haven't changed that much, even though a lot has obviously changed. Uh, yeah, well, for me, I always said that if I had to work at home every day rather than just one day a week, I would get bored, and I was right. It certainly is not for everybody. <laughs> well, Naomi, before we get into the tech side of your career, I think you know I've had one or two others on the show who have kind of that classics or history background who kind of have spent a lot of time in that space. And I'd love to hear more about what actually attracted you to the classics and what those early years of your career were like. And then, of course, I want to dive into the tech for sure. I guess even as a student, I kind of had um, two sets of interests. So, you know, when I was a kid, I was interested in, in history and, and things like that. And I was also interested in astronomy and physics and things like that. So by the time it came for me to go to college, I decided that I wanted to do 
history, and then I decided maybe ancient history would be fun. And then, well, if you're going to do ancient history, you need to know ancient languages. And I think that's kind of where I fell into the fact that I find languages great fun. I mean, great, great frustration sometimes too, mind you, but, but great fun the way that humans have come up with expressing themselves. And that led to getting a PhD in Greek and Latin and um, studying things like Sanskrit and hieroglyphics and all sorts of fun stuff along the way. And, you know, there isn't a whole lot in the way of career options. Classics professors tend to live a very long time. Uh, there's not a whole lot of, of new openings there. And so uh, I ended up teaching in the uh, independent school world. When I wanted to see a bit more of the world, I, I moved to Greece and taught in an independent school there, as, as well as taught some classes at a branch of a U.S. university in Athens as well. So the irony didn't escape me that I was there teaching people who spoke modern Greek how to speak ancient Greek sometimes, or ancient Greek mythology, things like that. I was going to say, like, that's got to be a little surreal to be an American in Greece teaching the Greeks mythology in ancient Greece. <laughs> right. And I, I would sometimes be telling sort of the ancient Greek version and someone would get a big grin and say, no, it really goes. And they would tell me the, the modern Greek version or things like that. So it was a lot of fun. Well, and of course, you know, too, that opportunity to live abroad and, and be immersed in a language is so important for learning, I imagine, as well. Yeah, it is. It really broadens your perspective. I know that's kind of a, a truism, but no, it really, it really does change the way you look at things. So then, as I understand it, you come back, you end up at the Canterbury School where you're also teaching classics. And but that's where I think, you know, things started to change. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, what was that inflection point that inspired you to get into tech? You know, you mentioned things like astronomy and perhaps some sciences back when you were younger, but how did the tech side emerge and how did you make that leap to full time? Well, actually, it began in Greece because when we got there, we decided to spend some of the I guess it was roughly equivalent to a signing bonus, I guess. We decided to spend some of that money on a PC. And, you know, I am rather improbably old. So that was an Apple IIc that we, we bought. And I learned basic and then I learned uh, 6502 assembler. And I go, why? Well, I don't know. It's just, I think probably I have a personality where once you sort of get into a problem, I just tend to want to keep diving in until I understand as much as I can. Then when we moved back to the States and I was in Indiana, I kept on doing that. I mean, we, we moved on to PCs and, and I learned some Pascal and some C and, you know, did various things to try and combine the interests. I, I know I worked for months on uh, a program in C to try to scan Latin hexameter and it mostly worked. You know, there, there are various things like that. And this being kind of the early days of tech moving into schools in a big way, since I was able to code and I was also willing to take machines apart and see what was wrong with them, I ended up doing that more until the headmaster finally said, you know, I think I can find another Latin teacher. Why don't you do all of this other stuff full time? 
And I think it, it was really actually hardware that got me more into the business than software. And I think the point where I realized that hardware, while it was hard, was not impossible was one of our computers started developing this weird quirk where it would change characters, apparently at random, on the screen. Now, like a Z would become a U or something like that. I don't remember the details. Well, I actually figured out that it had to be a spot on the memory chip going wrong. And then because of the way it was changing, I did the bitwise math and figured out which chip needed to be replaced. And believe it or not, that worked. You can get into these problems and, and just have this whole world that you can kind of figure out. That hooks me every time. And I love your shout out for Pascal there because you, you truly do have ancient languages even in the computer language. For the record, I learned basic and then Pascal as well. So I think we, we share a certain history there. No, I love that. Well, and, and if I recall right from the Canterbury School, like back in those days, a lot of it was like setting up the network and the lab environments and, you know, all of that. But you were writing some code for them as well, right? Like, were you building out systems for like teachers to use? The very first thing I did was, this was back in the day when we used uh, four page NCR forms to do report cards, one layer per quarter. And by the time you got to the fourth quarter, the stuff that had been written in the first quarter through all four layers was pretty faint. And the whole thing was just a, a royal pain. So I wrote some stuff to actually do the comments on a word processor and then merge them in and you could just feed the forms through a printer. That was my first sort of, not exactly open source, but kind of in that spirit. All the other teachers like, what are you doing there? Can I do that? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll show you how to use it. You can use my program. So you know, I ended up doing that. But then later on, you know, once I started Python, I actually wrote a student information system that tracked courses, schedules, grades, all of that. It was on the Zope platform, which is, is the basis of Clone still. And that system ran and was in use for a good, I think, 12, 13 years. It was running, I know, years after I'd left the school. So tell me about that leaving the school, because, you know, you were at Canterbury, as I understand it, for a fair amount of time, and you kind of in this IT director role, you're teaching some classes, and then you decide to, if I recall, like go off and get a full-time developer role. Is that right? Tell me about that a little bit more. It was a couple of things, I think. You know, one of the things is that being a transgender person, I really felt I had to do something to be at least more honest with myself. Mm. And I also felt that a private school in Northeastern Indiana was not going to be the place to do that. So there was certainly a drive there. And I think the other thing is that people who work in schools, whether they're public or private, don't always get the most reinforcement or the most you know, rewards for doing that. And I don't know, I just reached a point, I think, where it's like, okay, so I've been a teacher in this kind of environment for, you know, at that time, it was 25 years, something like that. And, you know, it's like, I've done this, I know how it goes. And I just felt that it was really time to do something different as well. So both of those things kind of going together, I think made me more willing to take that plunge. You know, I did this 
just as we were coming out of the last, you know, great recession um, before the, the current, you know, crisis-induced one, maybe wasn't the time that people would have recommended for somebody in middle age to go looking for a job. But I was willing to take that risk. You've been doing Python and kind of building up on the side a, a fair bit of standing in the Linux community and the Python community. And, you know, and, and that's one of the things that really comes through in, in your profile is kind of the woven throughout all of this is a pretty strong volunteer spirit, right? Whether it's Python, Software Foundation, Transcode, just like the sheer number of public talks I've seen, you know, on your list and the instructional work. I mean, tell me a bit more about the volunteer side of Naomi and what's been the impact of that for you? It's not so much something that I learned at home and, and you know, my, my family, they weren't particularly, you know, extra involved. But I found as, as I got a little bit older that I at least think that it is enjoyable to help other people. I think when there are events going on, I find it more rewarding to be a part of the event than to be a spectator to know how the event's put together, to help if something needs to be done, you can do that and you can make something happen. So it's kind of a combination of those things. The more I did it, the more I found that I kind of liked it. And I think that also in terms of a practical thing, sort of the way you allude to it, it really is, I think, a, a very good way of building contacts and building a network. If you're sincerely out there trying to help other people, that is the best way, I think, that you can find contacts and build a network. And, and I do mean sincerely doing it to help. Then you just get an enormous amount of goodwill along with those contacts. And that at least is what I've found. Yeah, it's been enormously important for me, both, both you know, kind of emotionally and, and satisfying that way, but also in terms of, of opportunities coming along too, I think. Well, tell me a little bit more about both Python Software Foundation. I mean, many of our listeners probably are at least aware of Python, but perhaps they don't know so much about the foundation. And then also tell us a bit more about Transcode as well. I'd love to hear kind of both sides of these take shape day to day. The Transcode one is, is, is a little bit simpler. When I transitioned, which was, that's not quite 10 years ago, that was still more so than today, a, a very, felt very much like a lonely and isolating experience in some ways. And I know being in tech, there were lots of events going on then as now in tech. There were lots of hackathons and hack days and these sorts of things. But there never really had been anything focused on trans folk. So you go to these events, you're always the odd person out. You're always, in effect, contributing to somebody else's experience in a way. And a man in, in Oakland, Courtney Ziegler, decided to put on a series of hackathons you know, the first one was Oakland, but they were around the country. There was one in Chicago and various things. And I, I went to, to several of those. I went to the first one in Oakland. And it was, it was really quite a refreshing experience to be able to go someplace like that and not be the odd one out and not have to feel like you were being part of somebody else's experience to just be able to breathe. So when I um, moved to London for a couple of years, 
I thought, you know, it'd, be, it'd really be kind of a cool thing to introduce that kind of experience in the UK and another country. I made contact with Jessica Rose, who's very active in tech circles there and was uh, and, and always had been a, a trans ally. And she had the experience in putting on the events like that. So we teamed up and we've done, it's like 13 or 14 now and counting in the past five years. You know, it's not something where there's an organization and finances and things like that. It's usually a bunch of people getting together either in, you know, a donated space for an event or, you know, in some cases as part of a conference or something like that. We've had several of them at PyCon UK. Uh, we would have had one at PyCon US this year if that would have happened. And actually, the good thing about most of these in the past two, three years is I haven't really been involved in organizing them. People have taken on that spirit and that model and just have built them out because it is a powerful experience to have that time for yourself. Certainly allies, everybody's welcome, but the trans folk, the queer folk don't have to feel like they're the odd ones out in that kind of event. So a lot of people have told me it's been a very, very powerful experience for them. That's fantastic. And I imagine just, you know, like that escape velocity, if you will, of this germ of an idea that you had. And then all of a sudden now you look at it and it's like, this has a life of its own. That's such a good feeling. That is probably one of the most satisfying aspects is that this idea was something that other people have valued enough to carry on. And that, that is great. Well, and then you're also part of this huge movement, which is the Python movement, which, you know, I mean, give our listeners a bit more of a taste there because, you know, this wasn't an ancient language like Pascal, <laughs> shall we say. It's really been quite an experience for me to watch. I started doing Python in 2001. It was actually at a Linux world and Guido Van Rossum, the creator of Python, was teaching a day-long tutorial and I went to that. And these days people are like, really? Yes, that was the way it happened. As I've been told, I mean, I wasn't really part of the group then, but as I was told, they didn't even know if it, among the 10, 11,000 people at Linux world, they would find enough Python people to go out for a beer. Uh, I'm told they did, but I, I think it was a close thing. So it wasn't very popular then. And I went to the first PyCon, so I've been to all the PyCons that there have been and things like that as this crew. And again, if you help organize, you kind of understand what's going on. I enjoy that. So I help do education sessions. Then I helped the poster session with something I created. Then I did the education summit because I felt that people were doing education with Python needed some sort of forum to get together and managed to talk the conference organizers into that. And there's a lot of things there where you kind of get to know people in the community and you work with them. So that led to me running for the, um, the board of directors five years ago and I was, was elected. And then for the past three years, I've been chair of the board. So, you know, that, that's kind of where I am. The PSF Python Software Foundation generally its first purpose is to hold all of the intellectual property of the Python language. So, you know, Python is open source, but the actual technical ownership of it all is under the PSF. I know that, you know, people in, say, Ruby are sort of surprised by this. It's like, oh, that's a little different. But in fact, we do have, for Python the language, everything all in one place. 
and we can control trademarks and like, the use of the Python name and things like that for the good of the community. You know, with the transition from Python 2 to Python 3, we made sure there wasn't somebody coming off with their own fork of something that was part Python 2 and part Python 3, and then they were going to call it, you know, and we just made sure that things like that didn't get the name of Python. You know, it's, it's open source. You can do whatever you want, but you can't call it Python if you don't follow the rules. So we do that, but over the years, I think our more important purpose has been growing and fostering a global Python community. It's a truism, or it's, it's a, a common statement now. Um, Brett Cannon said it first, uh, I came for the language, I stayed for the community. You know, now that Python is you know, arguably in the top three in terms of language popularity, yeah. I think we have a lot of new people coming in. I mean, Python's a great language, but a large part of our attraction still is we're known to have a good community. We're not perfect, but we really try our best to be inclusive and welcoming and support events. So, you know, a large part of the PSF's financial commitment now, well, in 2019, we spent over $300,000 supporting various Python events, tutorials, things like that around the world. And it was really pretty evenly split, like South America, 25%, Africa, 30%. It was spread around the world. It wasn't just in North America and Northern Europe. So that is a lot of what we do. So then being on the board for that, it's in, you know, strategy, resources, those sort of standard board of director type things that you do when you're trying to do good work on that kind of scale. This is such an amazing thing for our listeners who maybe are like, yeah, maybe I'm not so sure about open source. I don't know if I have the time, but like, you know, anybody can show up and contribute and you, just, you put in the work, you be reasonable, you volunteer and you can really build a whole career around it, which is just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I do tend to remind people that they will be more successful if they come in sincerely asking, what can I do to help? rather than what position do you have for me? You know, there's, there's kind of a distinction there. For sure. <laughs> Naomi, you know, I mean, like many people in software development, at least looking at your profile, you've kind of done what many of us have done, which has gone back and forth between individual contributor and managers, kind of switching from Python for a moment. I want to come back and talk about it later. But I'm curious, how have you approached this question, which I think so many of us go through, which is, hey, do I want to be a manager? Do I want to stay technical? Is it either or? Is it both? Like, how have you shaped your career or thought about th these various roles? In general, I know that I prefer to have a little bit higher view of the organization than just what an individual contributor tends to have. Usually, the price for that is to do some managing. If you want to see a little bit more of how the organization itself works. I've, I've never been the sort to be happy with just sort of sitting off in a corner doing one thing. But then as I have chosen roles, it has really depended a lot on, on what the role is. So when I took the job in London, for example, it was sort of to help start new companies and technically, I wasn't a manager, except that I ended up leading the team anyway. 
job after that, I also started out as an individual contributor. But again, it was starting on a new company that had interesting strategies, some interesting approaches to what it was doing. And I had some space to have kind of some insight and influence into what the company was doing. So for me, I know that's the thing that I'm more interested in. Managing, for me, it's fine. I'm not a person that hates to do it, but it's really what I see as part of that package of you know understanding the whole thing and the company's doing and having some impact on that. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's such a good framing, I think. Perhaps that's a good segue to the next question, which, you know, I think on one of your profiles, I saw you called yourself a make it work problem solver. And and I'm a big believer in that kind of figure it out mentality as well. And I was curious, like, how does that come forward practically for you as a manager? What are some tips perhaps our audience can take away that would help them be more solutions oriented? It's a good question because... I can tell you that just wishing the people on your team would dive in and do that doesn't work. I find that the only way I can work on that, and at least some people have told me that they found it useful working with me and you know that they benefited from it. And you know, I don't know, maybe the ones that didn't say anything, so I, I'm not claiming I've got proof, but I try to let people tackle things on their own up to a point, and then usually I will step in and start working through these things the way I would approach it. So I'm not necessarily interested in making sure they would come up with the same answer that I would. I actually would hope that they would be smarter than me, but quite often I see people even mid-level who just don't have, I don't know exactly what to say, the approach, the mindset of okay, let's dig in, let's break it down, let's break it down some more. What are the pieces we have that work? What are the pieces we think might work? Now, how do we combine those? I think it's actually comes down to just working with people a few times so that they can kind of follow along. Yeah, I love that. Well, and getting them to ask the questions on their own, as opposed to like you having to help them ask the questions. That's uh, at least been some of my experience. Coming back to Python, I'm also a Manning author, by the way. I'm pretty sure the only thing harder than writing a book from scratch is updating a book for a second or a third edition. I sat down to write my second edition and was like, I can't do this. And yet you've done it twice. So first off, tell us about the quick Python book and then tell us a little bit about your authoring process and who's the book for, what's it about, all of those good things. It's funny that when I was approached, to do the second edition, which has now been 10 years ago, it was pitched as being sort of an easy gig. You know, all you need to do is, and I thought, well, yeah, I I could do that. And and of course, the gap between Python 1.5 and, you know, Python 3.3 and the gap between 1999 and 2010 really kind of takes your breath away. So most of the code samples didn't follow, you know, PEP8 style guidelines and had to be redone. And there was probably about a fourth of the chapters that whether or not they were good then didn't matter. I mean, you know, the whole book was good. It was at least good that I got to start with a winner. But 
a fourth of the chapters were no longer relevant at all. They're various things. So it was probably more work than uh, starting from scratch. I learned that. Well, so then tell us a little bit more about the book itself and who's the target audience? The target audience, it's really meant to be people who have some experience coding. So it's not designed for somebody who's never written code before to pick it up. They read that book. I mean, that, that would be hard. That's not what it's meant to do. It's meant for people who have some experience in other languages. So they know what loops are. They know what functions are. They probably know what classes are, but they want to know how to do them in Python. My focus there is I want them to do them in Python. I don't want them to do it, say, writing Java using Python or something like that. That's the thing that I think in terms of my teaching and, and in terms of my writing and a lot of that is, is the thing that I focus on the most. I want them to understand what Python does as Python and then be able to use that idiomatically, Pythonically. You know, a quick Python book, I always think of it as it's meant to take somebody who knows what's going on in another language and get them up to being a at least a solid intermediate level in Python as Python, as I used to tell my, my students when I was teaching high school, so that the other programmers wouldn't laugh at them on the playground. You know, it's like, you know the standards, you can do it the way. So yeah, that that's what it's about. As a old school Java programmer, if I had a dollar for every semicolon I put at the end of a Python line of code, oh my God, I would just be retired. We wouldn't even be talking right now. Naomi, that's fantastic. And just a reminder for our listeners here as well, we have a little giveaway attached with this book. It's a fantastic book. Please do email in and take advantage of that giveaway. It is a great book to have. You've done teaching in the school system, you've written books, you also have a pretty long list of talks that you've given ranging from keynotes to deep tech talks, as well as, you know, you mentioned some of the stuff with transcode, and I know you've given some talks on some of these harder and more challenging issues in the tech community, like diversity and inclusion. Not only on that, like Naomi, like probably the thing that awes me the most is a budding Spanish speakers. You've done this both in English and Spanish. So I'm kind of curious for our listeners, tell us not so much about all the great talks you've given, but how you got your start giving that first talk and what advice would you give for somebody who wants to go down that path? Because that first talk is often the hardest, right? Having been a teacher and having been a teacher in some smaller schools and some schools where they expect you to do various things at the Canterbury school, two or three times a year, I had to give some sort of little talk to, to all the students because we had this sort of uh, daily thing they called chapel. It wasn't religious, but everybody got together and there were supposed to be words of wisdom or stories or whatever. And so having that kind of experience, I think, helps. And it, it really comes down a lot to practice. And I think learning to kind of deal with this sort of natural nervousness that you get. And, you know, I think people starting out, I guess it seems to me you want to look for smaller or regional conferences, um, things where the pressure isn't on quite as much. 
when you do this a lot, you get to the point where, okay, you're always a little nervous, but you can even recognize the signs of you being nervous and kind of manage them and that makes you less nervous and then you just go and do the talk. So that's fine. But when you're starting out, it's really easy to kind of feel overwhelmed. You know, getting that experience in, in, in environments that aren't too stressful, I think, is a good thing to do. So meetups, small conferences. I always kind of wonder about people who have their hearts set on giving their first talk at a big conference and all of that. I mean, that's doable. People survive, but it's, it's not quite the right way to kind of grow that. It takes practice to get used to doing this. Well, and I love your comment there on the nerves management because it's, it's funny is as you grow, like the nerves are still there. It's just, you learn how to manage them. At least that's been my experience, you know, and I've given hundreds of talks as well. And it's, <laughs> you're still nervous. If you're not nervous, you really don't care anymore. You probably shouldn't be doing it then. Starting to bring this home, Naomi, you know, I, I, I like to say, you know, jobs and careers aren't all sunshine and rainbows, but what's been the best thing about this arc, this career you've been on, and, and what's been the most challenging? I'm happy with the general course of things, and I've gotten to do a lot of interesting things. I've gotten to get some people started on their careers, so... That is one source of satisfaction in teaching when you hear from somebody 15 years later, you know, because of your class, I'm writing software today and I love it. So, you know, certainly that's, that's a good thing. And I've managed to help start some businesses and solve some problems that, you know, if I hadn't been around, they probably would have struggled with a bit more. So I, so I like that. I've gotten to, you know, live in a, in a couple of different countries. So certainly can't complain about that. And with the work they've done with the PSF, I've gotten to travel a lot and meet a lot of really wonderful people in, in various countries. So, so that's great. The hard part, well, I'm a pretty positive person. I think getting a feel for managing people a lot of us who do tech management, certainly the position I am, it's kind of, you're at that middle level between the top management and your team or, you know, and the people that are actually doing the individual contributions. That can be a little bit challenging sometimes. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of decide how you're going to navigate those two sets of pressures. I have so much empathy for middle management. It is by far and away one of the hardest roles, especially for a first time. Like you said, it's just like you're in this vice, right? People above and people below, and you're just trying to figure out how to navigate and get through the day to day. Corollary question off of those two, which those are great answers. I love them both. Uh, what's been the most surprising thing? The biggest surprise and the most pleasant surprise in a way has been how well it has worked for me, at least, to reinvent oneself. Because I did it a couple of times. And in both of those cases, when I, I made sort of major switches, I ended up being the happier for it. The lesson I tend to draw is taking that kind of, of risk, as long as you've thought it out, I'm kind of in favor of. If people think it's time for them to reinvent themselves, I think they should think about it carefully, then do it. That's such good advice, Naomi. Speaking of advice, you know, this show is called Developmentors. Spend a moment talking about a mentor, a relationship, or a friend or two that really helped you along your career path and perhaps the impact they've had. One of the ones that was the most helpful to me was actually my very first job when I was teaching Latin. 
He was a Spanish teacher. And I think he taught me a lot about dealing with people. And it was the beginnings of learning how to manage people as well. But just in general, uh, dealing with people and things like that, watching him. And, and he actually took me along when he was doing things. He, not coincidentally, I suppose, he also worked on the school's diversity and inclusion things at the time. So it, it's kind of important to understand people and how they work. And once you've got that, the technical problems tend to be much easier. So he was probably one of the keys. Truer words have probably never been said <laughs> there anyway. That's fantastic. I want to ask you to put on your mentoring hat. What's your best advice for somebody? I'm a big believer in taking calculated risks. So sometimes when people ask me for advice and they're going to do just you know everything, I'm going to do this thing and this thing and this thing, and, and, and in six months I'm going to be you know, 180 degrees from where I am now, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I always get a little bit nervous about that because, well, that doesn't usually work. And I think it's more the, the ones that, that I've talked to who've done better have been the ones that can kind of develop a reasonable plan and say, okay, yeah, I realize what I want to do is a risk, but these are the things that I'm going to do to get there. And I'm going to start with this thing. And you know, that's the way I look at things as well. It's like, okay, what, what are the steps I can take to get to this thing rather than I'm just going to dive in and it's going to happen. One of the things you practically, I'm assuming, planned out is that move to Chicago. You knew you, if you went to the big city, you would be in a place that's perhaps more friendly, if you will, or at least not as antagonistic. And so then, then you had to figure out, okay, well, how do I get a job in that city? Yada, 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 right? Well, it, it was kind of like that. It was more, can I get a job in a place that is better? And, and Chicago was the one that came along. Oregon and, and looked at, at a couple of other things that were possibilities as well. But it was the, the notion that when I started doing that, it was, we have to find a place that is better and I can do, you know, these things that I'm able to do and we'll see where we can go from there. Yeah. That's fantastic. Such good advice because I do think a lot of times people just have this look or just take the leap, right? And, and, Taking a little bit of a peek is not going to hurt you. you. You have time to explore and experiment in life. Naomi, so awesome to have you on the show. I mean, so many great things woven in there from the classics back in the good old days through to learning Python on the job to growing in the foundation, starting your own volunteer efforts, writing books. Final question, where can our listeners best link up with you, buy your book, follow you on social media, whatever is the best way to get in touch with Naomi these days. I'm on Twitter at uh, Naomi Cedar. These days I've been streaming some Python lessons on Twitch. So Twitch TV slash N Cedar. I have sort of a, a little website of just information for people who care at NaomiCedar.tech. So those are all, all places where one way or another you can get in touch with me. Awesome. Fantastic, Naomi. I appreciate it so much that you joined me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. 
If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S, all one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.